Hi, I'm Lara Bennett, and you're listening to Highway Butterfly, the stories of Neil Cassell. Neil was a gifted singer, songwriter, musician, and friend to many. He released 14 albums as a solo artist and collaborated on countless projects with other musicians. After his passing in 2019, his friends and family created the Neil Cassell Music Foundation to provide instruments and music lessons to students in New York and New Jersey and to support organizations that offer musicians mental health care. One of the featured projects of the newly formed foundation is the tribute album, Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Cassell, a sprawling 41-song collection bringing together a galaxy of rock and roots luminaries. We've asked the contributing musicians to share their memories of Neil and their stories of making the record. Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Cassell is out on November 12th. Pre-order the album and learn more about the Neil Cassell Music Foundation at neilcassellmusicfoundation.org. Warren, welcome to Highway Butterfly, the stories of Neil Cassell. How are you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm, uh, I'm here at Space Camp, our studio in Sonoma County, West Sonoma County. And uh, where are you? Uh, at the moment, I'm in Phoenix. I got here last night. I was in New York yesterday and uh, flew to Phoenix last night and woke up in Phoenix. And I will be in L.A. after the show tonight. So we're back at it. You're back at it fully. I, I know you were at the cap with Phil and friends because we sent Jimmy straight from Austin, Texas. I know. Right to play. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, somebody said, well, Jimmy's coming straight from Austin. And I said, oh, from, from Boston, that, that's okay. And I said, no, no, Austin. Austin. Oh, I thought he was coming from Boston. All right, okay, Austin, a little more of a trek and uh, a little less uh, COVID-friendly. Yes, it was, uh, it was a little wrinkly at first. I think everybody felt funny because this was the third time we tried to do those shows. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Texas is – it's Texas, and it, it was weird to play there. Everything's bigger. Everything is bigger in Texas. That's exactly right. Which, um, you know, is both good and bad, as as we can only imagine, you know. If only the shows had been outdoors, bigger would have been better. Yeah. Is, is the backyard gone? I don't know. You know, I love that place because yeah. when we first— I like the original one, uh, but I, I like the new one too, but— I just remember it went from being a little backyard, like it said, with a, a cool live oak behind the stage— yeah. And then they made it bigger and better until it was bigger and best. But then there became like a some sort of Best Buy strip mall kind of backdrop, which was, you know, it's all well, that way. That whole area, you know, years ago, there was nothing there. Yeah, Bee Cave, uh, right? Yeah, and when we used to go down to, to Willie Nelson's studio and record, and if we stayed in Austin, we'd drive to Pernalis and there was nothing. Uh, once you got halfway there, it was just barren. But yeah. now it's it's all virtually part of Austin at this point. It's pretty insane. I mean, it, it really reminded me of Nashville with all the glass boxes reaching to the sky and all the scooters. Just Yeah. Uh, I think Austin and Nashville and Asheville are – they're just – there's so many people going there. It's, it's a little scary because they're all great places in their own right. But – the influx 
always brings some uh, some strangeness. You know? Yeah, it's just uh, they grow too fast. Yeah, the, yeah, and it's it's hard to keep up with. It's hard to preserve the charm. Yep, and there are three charming places. You know, uh, Asheville, uh, you know, and Austin both like have this uh, this charm that defies the rest of that region in a strange way. You know, that's right. It's like a little blue dot of bohemianism. Yeah, and I mean, you grew up in Asheville, didn't you? I did, yeah. And when I was growing up, it was a map dot. It wasn't a blue dot. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, you know, seventy thousand people year after year after year after year never grew, uh, maybe even shrunk a couple of times. And there was always a lot of great guitar players and a lot of great musicians and a, a cool underground scene. But there were no venues. There were no studios. There was no music business in Asheville. That didn't start till about 20 years ago. Right. It was just a town that was a beautiful part of the Smoky Mountains and had more summer camps in proximity than any other town. Yeah, uh, which is, is still bizarre. People say, oh, I'm, my kid's going to summer camp at such and such. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's down the street from my mom's. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird, right? <laughs> yeah. So I noticed that you've uh, started releasing singles from the new government mule record, Heavy Load Blues. Tell us, uh, this is the first like straight up blues record the mule's ever done, right? It is. And it's the first straight up blues record I've ever done. I've been thinking about it for five or six years and I didn't really know if it was going to be a mule record or a, a solo record. But I think COVID made that decision for us because we knew Mule needed to get back into the studio. And, and uh, Stephanie, our manager, said, uh, well, what about you guys doing a blues record? You know, there's been talk about that here and there. And I said, yeah, but I have never determined whether it should be a Mule record or a, or a solo record. Uh, let's see what everybody thinks, because I didn't know if Matt and Danny and Jorgen wanted to make a blues record. Uh, but everybody was in agreement. Let's just go do as much recording as we can. And so I kind of insisted, if we're going to do that, let's make a Mule record and a blues record at the same time, stay in the studio longer than we ever have. We got nowhere to be. Right. We can't, can't go on the road. And, and we waited until everybody was vaccinated, uh, you know, because, as you know, we got two in L.A. I mean, two in L.A. and two in New York. So two of us got to get on a plane no matter what. And nobody was going to do that till everybody was vaccinated. Absolutely. Um, so we, we went in for longer than I've ever been in the studio and, and made two complete records. And uh, the blues record is going to come out first. And uh, I'm really excited. David, this is not what I thought we were going to talk about, but I'll tell you because I love you, uh, that we set up in two different rooms that were adjoining. And so in the big room, we had all our mule toys like we were making a normal mule record. And in this small adjoining room with low ceilings, we set up a bunch of little old amplifiers, tiny little guitar amps and bass amps, and, and a, ran the vocal through a monitor and ran the vocal through an amp. And we were all set up on top of each other playing live like we were in a tiny little club. So we would record mule songs all day in the big room. And then when it started getting late, we'd move over into the blues room and play the blues the rest of the night and then do the same thing the next day. And it, it turned out to be a wonderful recipe. Too much sky, too much ground. Life can be such a heaven low. 
great process you know it was cool because we were able to shut our brains off uh, at the end of the day and play blues which is the way it should be you don't want to play blues you don't want to play blues in the uh in the daytime and it's funny i was about to tell this muddy waters story muddy said johnny winter would let him play the reason he liked hard again the most of all his albums is because johnny let him cut at night and as i was going to tell you that gordy johnson sent me a, a, a text that I shouldn't have been able to see about a Muddy Waters video. <laughs> so, so it's just strange kismet. But yeah, uh, you know how it is. You get in the studio and you're thinking too hard anyway. You got to find ways to to let go of that. And if you're going to play blues, you got to let go completely. And so it, it, it was cool. Yeah, I mean, as someone that makes a lot of records, the the process, the idea of like, abandoning the big clinical room and going into like a little snake pit. The snake pits are good because uh, <laughs> you could get, you could get bit at any moment. That's right. Uh, we were so close together and every mic was picking up every instrument. So there was no discussion of whether we could fix something. It was that we were, these are keeper live performances because, you know, Every instrument, the vocal, everything is in the drum mics. Uh, you know, there, there was no, no way you could go back and punch something in. So we we may may as well have been recording direct to two track, which we weren't. Uh, and, but it was it was it was a great experience. That's commitment. I mean, and that's what's lacking so much in modern music is a group of people who know how to play together and listen, just going ahead and holding hands and jumping off into the deep unknown. Yeah, and you know. If you're going to make a blues record, you got to make it in the spirit of where it came from. You know, most of our favorite blues records, there was no budget for them to play takes five, six, eight times. You know, the the reason those records sound like they did is because they would cut several songs a day. And, and, you know, maybe they were, some of those records are made in one day, two days. You know, it's fantastic. That's yeah. And that it comes through. It really comes yeah. through. So this record, the full release, drops on November 12th. Yes. Which and is, when you say singles, uh, it's kind of, they're calling them singles because it's an isolated track, but it's kind of the opposite of a single, really. It, it's, uh, A, there's no reason to try to get airplay on a blues record, and B, these singles are like seven minutes and eight minutes right. long. <laughs> I'm sure there's a modern day term, uh, pre-release tracks, or yeah, the band has they... leaked these singles, yeah. single songs. Yeah. So yeah, the, not, 
the great thing about November 12th is uh, that's the same day that we're releasing Highway Butterfly. Yes. Which is really cool. Yeah, and I think that's nice kismet. It's really kismet. And the song you chose, Free to Go, is is absolutely fantastic. Um, I, I love that song. I, I, I really, really love that song, and I'm glad that that it was available for, for me to do because, as you know, I had been, we'd been talking about this for a long, long time. At one point I was coming to you. That's right. Uh, and we were going to record together. Uh, and then COVID prevented that. But then the fact that I could wind up doing it, I was hoping that some of my favorites would still be available. There was danger in your blood. did a great job and you know one of the things we're doing is we have a we're slowly building a Spotify playlist where every time we release a single we'll use that term again <laughs> because it's yeah it's just a single song um, right it's not married right it's not married it's <laughs> it's like a bachelor looking for a, a prom date and so uh, you know we put out Aaron Lee Tashin's song or Jamie Wyatt's song and and add it to the playlist and then we add the original Neil Casal version, yeah, which is kind of neat. And so when I was prepping for our interview today, I was like, you know, I'm gonna I'm just gonna do a little comparison. And uh, I listened to the version of Free to Go from Fade Away Diamond Time, Neil's version. It must have some. have something to say to me And then I listened to yours again, and I was really struck with, like, the way you honored it um, as a guitar song. And, uh, you know, the vocal performance is fantastic. You're very different in delivery vocally from Neil. But, uh, you know, as far as, like, guitar stuff, there's a lot of appreciation for Neil as, like, a prototypical Americana singer-songwriter. 
Um, but the Neil that I knew and a lot of people in the latter years knew was this guy who was becoming uh, a very versatile guitar hero kind of guy. How did you honor this in your rendition of Free to Go? Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I was thinking about how to do that before we got into the studio. You know, how far do I want to go in a different direction? How far do I want to go kind of honoring his guitar spirit? You know, because he and I played together quite a few times. And one of the things that occurred to me, but it, it didn't occur to me till after we had recorded the song was, you know, when we played together, we would always get into these things like these Neil Young moments where we're both playing at the same time and it's bobbing and weaving and, and working beautifully for a second and dissonant for a second and nobody knows where it's going to go. And then the intensity would build and build. And at some point it would reach a, a peak and it would make the whole thing pay off. And so when we were in the studio, I played a solo live on the take that I thought was pretty good, but I didn't love it. And everybody was going, oh, yeah, that, that's a cool solo, solo. You should keep it. It's played live with a take. And normally I want to keep whatever I play live uh, if I can. So I said, well, I, th I think I can do it better. Let me go do an overdub. So I went back and overdubbed. And in my mind, I was like, yeah, that's better. That's a better solo. And some people thought yes, and some people thought no. And we were listening back at one point, and I said, if Neil was here, there would be two solos going at the same time. And so put them both in, and let's see what it sounds like. And so they put both of them in, and I think it's way better than either one of them on their own. You know, it, I feel like maybe in some strange way I was playing to something right. in my head, you know, because neither one of the solos by themselves sound like a complete statement, but together they kind of do. And, and uh, I just kind of got a little goosebump moment there uh, thinking about it. took it out of the studio and, and put it on stage. That's you right. Know, uh, yeah. I really, when I heard the, the raw mix come out of the carriage house, I was, uh, I, at first I'm like, did they forget to mute one of these? But then, <laughs> like you said, it, it pays off, you know, and certainly you and I have played enough together. Um, in my time with government mule, at times you've set in with panic, assorted jam sessions. If there's another guitar player, there's always a little bit of cutting heads. But then eventually it just becomes this entrainment thing. 
Um, and it really does spiral and bob and weave, and then it links up together, and it's a big payoff. And you definitely you nailed that. And you know, as far as like the the, the chill, I kind of got one too because it, there were plenty of times over at Jim Scott's cutting these tracks where if it wasn't me getting goosebumps for whatever reason, it was the artist feeling like almost like Neil was there um, flying up in a corner. And, and, you know, in your group, you had John Ginty, who, of course, is yeah. like one of Neil's oldest people. Yeah. Uh, so he's, I, met, I met them at the same time, I think. Yeah. So I wonder if, uh, you know, Bruce Hampton always said you, you got to put the devil in the room, meaning <laughs> if you're going to play, you got to you got to bring the spirit into the room. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, it, there's always a part of me wondering if if Neil's not lingering around, you know, sort of either embarrassingly nodding approval or laughing at himself or laughing at all of his friends going through all this stuff. But I certainly felt it, and I was wondering if if you felt anything like that at all too. Yeah, I, I think so, and, and I think. If we're to believe in that sort of thing, and I think we do, uh, then what better time than this and what better place, uh, you know, if if those things are going to happen, this is when and where and how they're going to happen. That's right. Uh, And so, yeah, of course. Yeah. And plus, you know, let's start with uh, this is diverting for a second, but don't most studios have ghosts in them anyway? And or most of the best studios do, and and uh, the newer ones eventually will. Absolutely. Um, and, and so I think it's just a good place for that sort of convergence. You know, I, I think uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one that that, that felt that uh, during that time period. And I spent a lot of time with Ginty over those couple of days, and you know, it was really cool being with him because he was so close to Neil and those sessions mean even more to him than they do to you and I, which, uh, is, is a lot. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, it was happening over at pliers. I mean, you know, Jim Scott, uh, and Neil went way back, way back. I think Jim did the early demos, right? He, he produced fade away diamond time. And, and he's the one that, you know, sort of, gave Neil permission to become the amazing session guy that he was. And and I would always be surprised when some third party would call me and go, hey, I'm doing uh, background vocals on this session for Rick Rubin, and I think your buddy Neil's playing rhythm guitar on the session. And, of course, Neil would never volunteer that information. You know, I'd yeah. have to drag it out of him some other way. But he – and I think it's a direct uh, effect of having worked under Jim Scott's tutelage – of just that steady hand. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Neil had a bit of melancholy that injected into his songwriting. Um, And maybe we never really realized it, uh, but after somebody passes away and they've left like a body of work, poetry set to, to song and melody, some of those lines come out and hang in the air. Yeah. And there were times at Plyer Studios where Jim and I would be in the control room and an artist would be singing a song and, and one of those lines would go drifting by and we couldn't even look at each other because it would be yeah. so on the nose. Um, you know, and, and free to go, these things the change. They change context when the author has left this plane. Yeah, because uh, we assumed 
that the original version was him singing to someone else. And then the, there's role reversal that, that, that comes uh, on with this tribute, you know, uh, it's uh, that song is heavy anyway. And I was a little daunted by it, but it's so beautiful that I, I thought, you know, whenever I get, whenever I start second guessing and thinking maybe it's a little too close to the bone, I always go back and yeah. So what? That means it has to be done. That's right. These are things that a lot more people should have heard these songs. Yeah, absolutely. When Neil was alive. And I think that, you know, the lack of respect that he felt that he was getting from people he didn't know that weren't in his circle, uh, that was a big part of it. And that circle was widening all the time. It was. You know, there were more and more and more people that were getting hip to what he was doing and what he had done. And like you, you said, his guitar playing had grown so much. You know, when, when I first met those guys, meaning... John Ginty and, and, and Neil, I think Neil was more introduced as a singer-songwriter. Right. And uh, and then when I heard him play guitar, I'm like, wow, he's a really cool guitar player. But that's going back, you know, decades. And so when you see where he took it over the last 20 years or so, it's uh, – and as we've all been fortunate enough to do – sharing the stage with so many creative minds that influence each other, you know? So one experience brings out a whole nother side of you that was always there, but was never nurtured. And, uh, you know, we watched that and I, it was just great to see the, the last three or four times that I saw him play. I think he took it further than I'd ever seen him take it. Yeah. It was, it was amazing because Really, I didn't even know who he was until I think I might have seen him with the Cardinals or maybe with Phil, but it was when I started working with Bob Weir at TRI and Justin Kreutzman had just filmed that uh, Move Me Brightly yeah, yeah. where they brought in Russo and Jonathan Wilson and, and Comenti and you know the whole gang from the West Coast. Mike Gordon was there and there were pictures up of that performance and there was one of Neil and... I was like, okay, so that's Neil Cassell. I keep hearing about him. And then we convened to record the first Hardworking Americans record, and he pulled up in his white pickup truck with the camper, surf mobile from Ventura, and <laughs> unloaded his amps and his guitars, and we set about making that first record. And that was how I got to know him was we didn't even really get a chance to talk. We did it yeah. musically. And, yeah. And he had great ideas. He was It was obvious that he was a studio rat. Um, a kindred spirit. And, you know, the whole point of that record was deconstructing other people's music. So we took Kevin Kenny straight to hell and turned it into a gospel dirge. Yeah. Um, and Neil would just unwind these beautiful guitar solos. I'm going straight to hell Just like my mama
But the guitar hero aspect really didn't come in until Todd Snyder gave us permission to like <laughs> be whatever jam band hardworking Americans was going to be. And since Neil had recorded all these beautiful overdubs and stacked his vocal harmonies beautifully, he's like, I got to have Jesse Acock in this band. I cannot, I can't do all the stuff I did and we need to do it. And he was right. So then having a foil in Jesse Acock yeah, right. and, and, you know, with the rhythm section like Dwayne and I, he was able to unspool things and he was just so patient. You know, he's one of those rare guitar players that could patiently unspool a guitar solo over a super frenetic rhythm backing. Um, so with that and the live record, that was one thing. And then he started talking about Circles Around the Sun and he was excited about Circles Around the Sun because he's like, this is just, it's like a lark. You know, we're just supposed to like jam on some Grateful Dead style themes and they're going to use it as set break music for Fare Thee Well. And that was all it was supposed to be. And he said that the name of the game was get out of your own way and be patient, um, which are yeah. great lessons for any any musician, no matter what genre they're in. Um, Absolutely. But no one saw it taking off the way that it did. And so the second Circles Around the Sun record is, wow, this is like, this is something real. And then the third one is just unbelievable. And, you know, and it's unfortunately some of his last recorded work, but there's patience and guitar heroism, but it's not flashy. You know, it never, there's a sense of urgency, but it's never frenetic. But isn't that the way so many great things come about in an unexpected sort of uh, way that they weren't concocted, they just kind of fell together and whatever expectations were there kind of went out the window and maybe new ones came along in their place. But, you know, I think about so many great projects that we've all been part of and uh, government mule being no exception. Obviously, you know, we didn't think we were going to make a second government mule record. Right. Uh, why would we, this is a one-off thing, you know, but when things like that happen, it's because some spark ignites and, and then, uh, it grows on its own as opposed to somebody in a laboratory thinking, okay, I've got this idea and this is how it's going to go and don't deviate from it and don't piss me off. That's right. That's a recipe for maybe selling macaroni, but not necessarily <laughs> music. <laughs> That's why we don't sell macaroni. That's right. But we do enjoy it from time to time, yeah. don't we? <laughs> I think, yeah. But hopefully not as much as people enjoy music. No, because something special happens when when people play music together. And it goes back to that spirit in the room, the the things that give you goosebumps. Um, it's a closeness to whatever the power behind the universe is, whatever you want to call it. When people are listening and, you know, there's that whole like the way an athlete gets into the zone yeah. and, and they have a career game and they don't really have much to say about it because it kind of the game was playing them. Right. That's right. And uh, when that happens with – a group of musicians. Uh, and then, you know, you get into the jam scene where the audience really is a, a another Part member of, of the group. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's addictive, you know, it's really, it's amazing. And, and I remember Mickey Hart saying, this is why our wives don't understand that we'd go out and play in a nightclub for 12 people. But you just, when it happens on stage, it doesn't matter whether it's a stadium, a theater 
or, you know, a snake pit. Because that's right. It's happening and we all feel it. And and we're that's exactly right. We're a little bit less attached to the earth for a while and it feels really good and it's important. Well, and we're lucky if we get to experience that once in our life. That's right. And for people like you and I that have experienced it multiple, multiple, multiple times uh, with multiple partners, it, it's, uh, you know, that's the thing that I appreciate or revere the most about my life is that having the opportunity to have that experience, to have it more than once, to have it with uh, several different people and to still be chasing it, you know, like uh, it's hard to describe to someone that doesn't understand that. But, it, you know, I'm sure it's uh, similar to a drug in, in a way. You know? It's a drug. And, and you mentioned multiple partners, not to get ornery here, but, you know, right. <laughs> I mean, musicians can, they can, you know, they can do it with all the musicians they want. No one really going to get jealous. It's not going to break up a band usually. I mean, I guess it can, but, you know, we're lucky in that respect because it's like, new blood. Like every time someone sits in, like when you would come to sit in with widespread panic, there would be a new energy injected into it. And it was a chance for that particular night to go somewhere completely different. And it would be, you know, it's, it makes it special. And we are lucky. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I, I wish that Neil could have somehow found a way to step back and not worry so much about the direction. Because as you mentioned earlier, when we do things out of love and because they're fun and we have no expectations and there's no grand plan, then things will take on a life of their own. It's almost like the universe will sort of take over to a certain degree. Yeah. And what you said about getting out of the way, that, that's really the deal is if you can completely remove yourself from the thought process and just ride the wave, and there has to be a wave to ride. That's but right. if you can if you can get out of the way, that's the best it's ever going to be. Uh, and and those moments, you know, you could never plan them. And when they when they happen, you just have to be thankful for it. But it it is all about letting go of of that human instinctual thing that we all want to do to to control where something is going. You know, that's right. And, and you know, myself as a band leader. When, when I'm in a situation, sometimes if it's getting out of hand and I think this is going nowhere, I might, my first instinct is to like, okay, let me bring it back to, to some sense of reality, you know, but you hear the tape back and that time period was a lot shorter than you thought it was. It felt like really long <laughs> at the time, but I've learned through the years, just no, just let it go, you know, and we've all learned from Bruce and, and Phil and, and people that uh, that let go way beyond what we're accustomed to. And hopefully we've learned to, to maintain that direction. But it's kind of you're having to, to balance and draw that line in the moment. And the Grateful Dead would always just like relax and wait for it to happen. That's right. I mean, our perception of time on stage somehow is it's very compressed. Yeah, You know, and, and Mickey Hart made me very aware that for the audience, their perception of time is very different. And 
they can appreciate a band simmering on stage, yeah, like a good stew. And and but for some reason, while we're on stage in the band, it's like, oh gosh, nothing's happening. Yeah. But to learn to let go, and then to to pay tribute to the the other half of the Rhythm Devils, the scariest musical moments I've ever experienced are with Billy Kreutzmann, where he has gone into full dance mode. There is no one, even on a song like Bertha. I can yeah. remember he was just. He was having a great time, and, and I was playing with Kimok and Kamenti and Kreutzmann, and uh, I saw Steve just—he was just being a rudder, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. As a bass player, I felt literally like my feet weren't touching bottom in the ocean, and the waves were crashing all around me, and it was so scary, and I thought it was just—this has got to just be awful— and then a couple of days later, someone sent me a link to a video of the performance. And while I might have looked scared on the video, it was it was amazing music because yeah. everyone was – it's a combination of letting go and holding on all at the same time. At that moment, you're struggling to hold on to, to what's happening. And so you don't realize maybe it's awesome. Maybe I just can't – I'm just not in control here, but maybe it's really great, you know. The possibility, and you can't control everything. That's, and I think that bothered Neil. You know, I don't think he could make the connection between being okay, which he was on stage, without being in control. He he would grin and bear it in those moments of of chaotic unknown. But maybe in life, you know, his yeah. mileage was varying to a degree, and uh, you know, it just it didn't work out very well. Now I want to I want to sort of shift gears here, and and get a little personal if you don't mind, because uh, you know, Widespread Panic and Government Mule played a lot of gigs together. Yes. And then, when Alan Woody sadly passed away, you called me and you said, "Hey, will you come play this charity gig we're going to do for Woody's widow and his little girl at the Roseland in New York? Everybody's going to be there. It'll be great." And so I did, and. It was one of the most nerve-wracking things I've ever done because I was so close to Woody and I, he was like a hero and a big brother and a, you know, a comedy partner. All those things rolled into one. Um, and just the sweetest guy in the world that you're ever going to yeah. see wearing pink sweatpants and a, a black <laughs> motorcycle vest at the same time. Um, but we, we decided that we had had fun. And so I wound up playing with Government Mule for a couple of years. And while – we were playing. We lost Widespread Panic's founder, Mike Hauser, to pancreatic cancer. And, you know, we had many long nights in the front lounge. And um, I wanted to get a read from you on, you know, how we plow through loss, how we continue to, like, have these moments we've been talking about as musicians and, and co-conspirator creators. When, you know, somebody – a founding member, a brother, has has passed on. You know, uh, I always think back to the the stories about the Allman Brothers uh, in 71, 72. First they lost Dwayne in 71. Then they lost Barry in 72. And in both cases, they just kept playing music. They just plowed through it and music was part of the healing process. And, and in hindsight, a major part of it, because, you know, there's the obvious 
thin layer part of it that is, you know, music uh, gets us through hard times and music is, is something that brings us joy and, and there's nothing negative about it. But there's this deeper thing of it physically healing you in those intense moments. And if you can bring yourself to play music in those moments, there's a cleansing that's going on that you can feel it and, and you definitely feel it after the fact. And so I always think about the bands that came before us, that how they dealt with it. And of course, when Woody died, you were one of the people that I spoke to at length about continuing because uh, as you I'm sure remember, I didn't want to continue going to Mule. I, in my mind, it was over, and I think Matt felt the same way, and there were a lot of people, and you being a, a major proponent, that were going, you know, you got to find a way to keep it going because the, the music's more important than this moment in time, you know? And I think when you look back now, after all you and I have been through, it kind of seems obvious, but it didn't seem obvious then, you know, and, and you just have to be thankful that what we're scared of continuing is something so special and so beautiful that, of course, we should continue it. It, it deserves that that care, that love, that, uh, that appreciation. You know, I, I look at what Government Mule has done since Woody died as being his legacy. You know, he he has a part in every decision we ever make, every every move we ever make. I think about what would Woody's reaction to this be, <laughs> you know, uh, and it, it's, you know, a lot of people knew him pretty well. And, and some people think he might have thought one thing when in, in truth, he would probably have thought quite another, you know, he. He and I had so many long talks, uh, as you can imagine, because you and I have had hundreds of hours. Woody and I have had thousands of hours of those back lounge, mostly discussions, because he loved it back there. And he, he would have these bizarre ideas about, uh, what do you think about for the next record or the record after that? If we were to, and he would just have like, that is some strange shit you're talking about now, but it is 4 a.m. Uh, yeah, let's 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 dwell on that. You know? uh, but you know, when when Woody passed, two of the first conversations that I had were with uh, with Phil Lesh and with Greg Allman. Ironically and uncannily, both of those guys called me, and I remember what Phil said. Uh, he said. I know what it's like to lose someone with whom you have a profound musical connection. And uh, that meant a lot to me and, 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 and ran deep. And then uh, Greg called me and it goes, you know, Greg loved Woody so much. They were motorcycle riding partners. Uh, they were fun having partners. They were, as you and I are, and, and all of us together uh, that we're talking about, Comedy, partners in comedy, you know, on our bus, me and Greg and Woody, we were laughing all the time. And that was that was just part of it. And so when he called me, it was it was mostly about how much he loved Woody and and uh, 
And then we talked several times after that. And at one point, I told him about this dream that I had had where Woody was still alive, where we showed up at a venue and Woody was living in the, like some upstairs room of this venue and nobody knew he was there and he made his presence known and we were having this discussion. So are you going to play? Are you not going to play? Like it was just this weird dream. And I mentioned it to Greg and, and uh, the first thing out of his mouth, he goes, Oh yeah, you're always going to have those. Right. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, he's talking about Dwayne. He still has dreams about Dwayne, some wacky ass dreams about them fishing or, or riding motorcycles or, or whatever, you know, um, it's, uh, I, I don't know. I, I imagine when Mikey passed for you, all those years, man, it's just, it's hard to think about where it's all going to, going to go and why. And, you know, I can't, I, Bobby Sheehan, right. You know, we, uh, you know, there was, you know, there was a whole wave of, of loss going on at that time period, you know, and, and, and Woody and Bobby were close. Well, there's always been a bass player communion, right? That's like, right. <laughs> Bass players always feel like they got to stick together, and rightly so. Well, we have to. I mean, there's so many of guitar players and drummers that are out to get us. <laughs> you got one up the rear and one on the side. It's like, <laughs> what can you do? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I I know those dreams. I've had those dreams with Hauser, um, and yeah. in those dreams, he's uh, he appears backstage, um, and we're talking, and it's like, hold on a second, but you're dead. Yeah. And uh, he's like and, – and it's funny because, yeah, it's cool. Okay, well, then let's go play. You know, it's like, all right, we'll have uh, Jimmy and Mike, the spirit of Mike Hauser and John Bell all on guitar. And, yeah. And it will yeah. be wonderful. The dream always ends before the music starts. But that uncanny yeah. moment right. of realization right. that – it's For me, it's never gone as far as we're on stage playing together. That It's, it's never made it that far. It is funny, though, when we were making the first studio record after Hauser passed away, there were times, and this would happen on stage, too, um, where it could it could be explained as like some odd audio illusion, phantom harmony kind of thing where it's like, did you hear that? It sounded like Hauser. But in the studio, we all heard it, including John Keane, but then we couldn't chase it down. Yeah. You know, it's like, what the heck is going on here? And it, it would happen occasionally, you know. Neil is obviously inhabiting the upper left corner of Jim's tracking room right now and looking yeah. over John Graboff's shoulder at Tony. <clears throat> and uh, But it's okay. You know, that's the thing is it's that it's okay. Um, and Well, and we, we were talking about the ghost in the studio anyway. Uh, you know, uh, Bearsville, we were talking about Bearsville before we got on camera with Gary. Uh, Bearsville got ghosts. Muscle Shoals got ghosts. Cash Cabin uh, got ghosts. <laughs> absolutely. And, and when we were, when Government Mule was recording Life Before Insanity at Bearsville, uh, we were in the middle of tracking No Need to Suffer. And I was playing the guitar solo. And in my headphones, I heard a woman's voice singing way up high. And uh, when we finished, I said, uh, did anybody else hear that? And Brody Hutchison said, uh, 
a woman singing? I said, yeah. He said, yeah, I heard it. And we looked everywhere. There was no explanation for it. And uh, there was nobody else in the studio but us. But at least two of us heard it. That's right. I mean, it's it's apparent. It's I had a studio here at Prairie Sun, an engineer that was like very disappointed that the project I was producing was going digital because uh, he said digital doesn't capture the ghosts the same way that analog tape does. <laughs> I believe that. I don't know if Ghostbusters approve of this methodology, but, uh, <laughs> you know, what do they know? We're musicians and they're just reality show stars. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you one last thing before we wrap it okay. up. And, and I really right. I appreciate you so much and I love you so much because I felt that uh, – you know, we have logged hundreds and hundreds of hours together on stage, on the road, and, you know, I learned so much between, I mean, come on, who wouldn't want to have Chuck Lavelle on one side, you on the other, and Matt Apps in the rear? Um, it was just wonderful, and we've that logged hundreds amazing. of hours doing that stuff, yeah. and, and it was some of my favorite time, and it was a difficult time, and I thank you for helping me through you know, I feel like we helped each other through and, and we're both still here because we're able to talk these things through and share this sort of magical entrainment on stage that that reminds us that those who've passed legacy continues on through the music that we're still here to make. But uh, along with those hundreds and thousands of hours of fellowship and music making on the road, can you share anything that as far as like the mental health and, and the way that we can feel alone sometimes or that we're outsiders when we're out on tour, um, what are some things that maybe keep you on uh, straight and narrow or, or just like a, a healthier kind of keel? Um, I think deferring to the people that came before you, the people that are no longer with us, why that is the people that are still around and why that is keeping the demons down. And, and uh, you know, th there's a lot of pressure and to, to not give into it, you know, it's a fine line between comfort and pain relief and killing yourself. And, and, you know, so be on the, the right side of that line, you know, it's hard out there, but you're right. I mean, the best way is to just, when you're feeling it, talk to people. Talk to people that you know and trust, people you have experience with. I, I remember, I think it was Greg Allman in, uh, in the Deepest End movie where he's talking about the hardest part sometimes is getting off the carousel. Yeah. Like, you know, the roller coaster ride of being on tour and playing gigs and, you know, it's thrilling. And even if the gigs are bummers, there's still those hours of fellowship on the bus. And, and yeah, you can toe the line with the substances or whatever, but you get up and you do the next show. And, and it might be the show you've been waiting your whole life to have. Yeah. But for me, I think the hardest time was when the emergency brake is pulled and, the you know, I'm home. And it took me a long time to realize, why am I feeling nervous around, you know, 6.30 or 7 o'clock at night when I'm sitting in an easy chair watching Seinfeld reruns. And then I realized it's showtime, yeah. you know, and, and I have this muscle memory of, of like going through the stage nerves and, and getting ready. However I do to go on stage. 
And I think that, you know, we have to remind folks because part of the Neil Casal Music Foundation is backing up some mental health resources for people, um, that it doesn't just happen on the road. Sometimes it happens at home. It happens uh, – it's happened to a lot. We've lost a lot. I mean, Woody was off tour. He wasn't home, but he was off tour. Brent Midland, off tour. Garcia, off tour. Uh, that's usually that's usually the case, I think. You know, and, and whether it's like the excitement has died down, but it's tough for a lot of people uh, in so many ways because of COVID. Um, especially for like me, I, I really put myself through it once we got started in June. Um Got a few gigs under our belt, felt good, and then all of a sudden, bam, emergency break is pulled again. And I'm like, ugh, that's when it hit me. And I was home. Should have been happy and uh, okay, this is the way it is, just like I was all through 2020. We're all in the same boat. But somehow it was different. Um, yeah. But, but being able to talk to people helped me. Yeah, I was going to say, we all, whether we're musicians or not, we we all have to kind of hone in on the fact that there are people that have it better than us. There are people that have it worse than us. Uh, but most of us have it pretty damn good compared to the rest of the world. And so you can never forget that because sometimes your, your own trouble seems so massive and monumental that you just, you forget that, uh, until you walk out into the real world and here's a guy with no legs, you know? And it's like, uh, I always find myself like wallowing in my own misery and, and then having to remind myself that, uh, don't forget how lucky we are. We all are extremely lucky and fortunate to have each other in our lives and fortunate to have music in our lives and, and, uh, never forget that. Well, I'm sure fortunate that you're in my life. I love you dearly. I love you, man. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. Um, and thanks for contributing your amazing track. It's it's just, it's a standout. You did a great job and Neil would be proud. And I know that Neil loved you so much. And I'm honored to be part of it uh, for him and, and to be surrounded by all the great company. And that was a, a beautiful moment uh for me that it just uh i'm i'm so glad that uh, you guys are doing all this and it's been a long time in the making and thanks for putting all the time and effort into it because it, it, you know what did it start out it's like 10 or 12 or 15 songs or something yeah yeah we were thinking maybe 18 and it blew up into 41 and <laughs> yeah there's still a lot of great neil songs out there and uh yeah I couldn't be prouder and, and you know, the way that everybody really came together, the way you pulled your session together in the midst of COVID, um, you know, that's the thing is that we, we got 27, 26, 27 other songs done um, in various remote ways in yeah. COVID ease as it were. Um, yeah. And Jim, you know, Jim Scott mixed them all. So we have some great sonic continuity and I, I can't wait for people to hear this, uh, there's going to be a whole new legion of of Neil Casal fans and and yeah. uh, an awareness of the fact that you're not alone if you're feeling too deep in your skull. Um, music heals and and there's love and that's the thing you brought the love in your version of Free to Go and everybody filtered the song they chose 
yeah. through what they felt about Neil and how the song made them feel and how I guess they hoped to impart through their artist lens. So um, yeah. I'm going to let you go. Have a great time with Willie. I love you. Love you too, man. I hope to see you very soon. Yeah, let's make some music. All right. Okay, Warren, thanks. Bye. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Backline, the music industry's mental health and wellness resource hub. Launched in 2019, Backline gives artists, crews, and their families quick and easy access to mental health and wellness resources. Backline provides individuals with case management and offers virtual support groups as well as yoga, meditation, and breath work. To donate, learn more, or get in touch for personalized care, visit backline.care. That's B-A-C-K-L-I-N-E dot C-A-R-E. Thanks for listening to Highway Butterfly and the stories of Neil Casal. Tune in next week to hear more from the artists who made this tribute album a reality. Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Casal is out on November 12th. All album net proceeds go to the Neil Casal Music Foundation. You can pre-order the album and learn more at neilcasalmusicfoundation.org. Osiris.